Well, friends, pain clouds our understanding. Whenever we're in pain, it, it, it colours the world around about us and everything about us. And this is particularly true when the pain is caused by failure in relationships. For pain and mental health problems often are caused by relationship failure. And today when we come to the next passage in the Sermon on the Mount, in chapter 5 and just these two verses, verses 31-32, we hear Jesus teaching on divorce. And this is a pain that is amongst us. For I guess nobody here is untouched by the contagion that is sweeping our society, be it directly because we've gone through divorce ourselves or be it indirectly in that members of our family or close friends have gone through this most painful of processes and experiences. And the pain is not easily eased. There's no kind of magic wand to restore everything back to the fun and excitement and joy of the wedding day. No easy way to erase the hurtful memories, to take back the hurtful words, to remove the blows, the, the legal manoeuvres, the custody fights. Life goes on. New relationships develop. And Jesus says in verse 32, but I say to you, everyone that divorces his wife except on the grounds of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. In this whole area, we are looking for legislation to know what is right, to know what is permissible, to know what's wrong, to know what you cannot do. And the church, as the agent of society, solemnizing marriages gets caught in the question of legislation. When is remarriage ever right? When is it just adultery under another name? When is it an expression of God's good gift to us? I don't know any minister of the gospel who likes this subject because we get caught up in this subject. But of course, no minister of the gospel can avoid this subject because this is where people's lives are, this is where the pain is, this is where the hurt is. And why is this passage all about men? Where are the reciprocal rights for women? When can women divorce men and remarry another man without committing adultery? It was in the teaching of Jesus in Mark chapter 9 that it was made clearly reciprocal. Anything that is said to men is equally applicable to women. Anything said to women, equally applicable to men on this subject. But here in Matthew 5, it's only addressed to men because the whole Sermon on the Mount was only given to men. He gathered his 12 disciples together and he taught them they're all male. That was part of Jesus' context. When giving the Sermon on the Mount to his disciples, he was training them in how to fish for men with the gospel message of the kingdom of heaven training them to be salt and light in the world, training them to live differently, to be a city on a hill that is unmistakable, training them to have a surpassing righteousness, 
quite different to the Pharisees in that it was genuine from the regenerated heart, seeking to love God and serve him by keeping his laws to the maximum application that were possible so that men would see their good works and glorify their Father who is in heaven. So Jesus drew attention to the hypocritical way that people, especially the Pharisees and the scribes, would avoid keeping the law while pretending to be able to keep the law. Two weeks ago we saw was the law on you shall not kill. Last week the law on you shall not adultery. And now in verses 31 and 32 the issue of adultery is continued. For there is another way of hypocritically appearing to keep the law while in fact flouting its very intention and purpose. And that is by misusing the law of divorce. So Westerners can criticise the Muslims for their polygamy while at the same time practising serialised polygamy. We may not have four wives at the same time, we may have four wives one after the other and not limit ourselves to four. We can go on and on. But we do it through the divorce courts. But to grasp Jesus' point requires understanding the law. For the Pharisees were themselves in great debate about the law of divorce, disputing in particular the Old Testament reference to it in Deuteronomy chapter 24. So today I want to take four steps on the way through our discussion. Look at Deuteronomy 24, look at what the legalists were doing to it, look at what Jesus did to it, and then come back to look at ourselves in the light of Jesus' challenge to the Pharisees. So we turn first to Deuteronomy chapter 24, which is found on page 199 in our Bibles. If you just turn there, page 199 in our Cathedral Bibles. Deuteronomy 24 and the first four verses of the chapter. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favour in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house and she departs out of his house. And if she goes and becomes another man's wife and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter man dies, who took her to be his wife, then her former husband, who sent her away, may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord. And you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. It's two sentences in those four verses, and the first sentence goes for three and a half verses. One long, complicated sentence. But in that complicated sentence, there's actually only one command. It occurs in verse 4. Then her former husband, who sent her away, may not take her again to be his wife. Uh, let me try and give you a concrete example of what this is about. Uh, I'll do it from Hollywood. Where else can you find multiple marriages? Robert Wagner married Natalie Wood in 1957 and then divorced her in 1963. Richard Gregson then married her in 1969 
and they divorced in 1972, whereupon Robert Wagner remarried Natalie Wood in 1972 until she died under very strange and mysterious circumstances, if you may remember, in 1981. Now what Deuteronomy 24 is talking about is that third marriage. Having put her away, if she marries somebody else, then you are not to receive her back as your wife. At first glance it sounds a preposterous thing to happen, but here it's happened just in the life of very famous people in Hollywood, but there it happens. But in making that command, there are several assumptions. Firstly, that divorce is accomplished by certificate. So in verse 1, divorce is accomplished by giving her a certificate and sending her away. Notice this is not being commanded that they should do it, that this is just the right way to do it or just the way in which it is done. That's all that's being commented upon. Secondly, notice that the certificate is given in order to remarry. Without the divorce certificate, she would not be able to remarry for she would be still recognised as the first man's wife and so any remarriage would actually be bigamy. That is, the purpose of the certificate of the divorce is to declare the end of the marriage, the total end of the marriage, such that the person has freedom to remarry. Thirdly, Notice from verse 4 that such a remarriage defiles her. For the assumption of verse 4 is that by her remarriage she has been defiled. Read it again. Then her former husband, who sent her away, may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled. For that is an abomination. Well, when was she defiled? It's not the is it not the second marriage that defiles her? The second husband has not defiled her by divorce because he may have died, but she still would be defiled. By virtue of having the second marriage, she has been defiled. Or possibly by the bill of divorcement being read, she may have been defiled. But the activity of releasing the woman to marry another is the defilement, which is fourthly the reason for the one command in the passage. In verse 4, you're not to remarry the defiled woman. The second marriage defiles her so that the first husband cannot now in holiness marry her. If she didn't marry a second time but remained unmarried, he could possibly remarry her himself then why did he divorce her in the first place? Why didn't he just separate from her so that they could sort out the problems they had and then be reunited? But he has divorced her. He's given her a bill of divorcement that says the marriage is over. You are free to marry somebody else. Now, with the law of Deuteronomy in mind, let's take our second step look at the questions of the legalists as we come back into, well, no, we'll stay here in Deuteronomy 24 for a moment, but as we move to what the legalists of the first century were doing. For Jesus had to contend with Pharisees who wanted to avoid the law while appearing to keep it. The, the minimizers of the law, the, the loophole seekers. They assumed 
that a certificate was commanded. This is the question they put to Jesus in Matthew 19, verse 7. They said to him, Why did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? He doesn't command it. He describes it. Very big difference. This is the question that lies behind Jesus' teaching in Matthew 5 when he says anyone who divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. Jesus is not quoting or commenting on Deuteronomy 24 but on the common Pharisaic misunderstanding of Deuteronomy 24 because Deuteronomy 24.1 does not command a certificate of divorce. When a man takes a wife, marries her, if then she finds no favour in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his... It's not telling you to do it. It's just describing that's what's done. Jesus is not quoting or commenting on Deuteronomy 24, but this misunderstanding of the Pharisees. Their assumption was that a certificate was commanded and therefore it was a right and proper thing to do. It's a key misreading of the law. A second error of the legalists was to try to determine what is, as it's described here, displeasing. For there appears this strange phrase in chapter 24, verse 1, because he has found some indecency in her. Now what constitutes an indecency that would legitimise divorcing? They argued about it. In the first century, uh, Rabbi Shammai, uh, who held a rigorous position, said adultery. That's the only thing. Whereas Rabbi Akiba, who held a very laxist view, he said, finding the girl next door more attractive than your wife. That would mean to find indecency in your wife. And then Hillel, Rabbi Hillel, was in the middle somewhere. There's any number of varieties of opinions that were taken amongst the Pharisees. And so this phrase opened up for those who don't want to obey the law the opportunity of de deciding, determining, making up the grounds for divorce. What she did or said or wore or something else could be adequate grounds to fulfil the law of sending her way with a letter of divorce. Then she would be no longer your wife and you would be free to worry another. Which brings us to the third step in our consideration of the subject, Jesus' teaching. So come back to Matthew 5 here in Jesus' teaching. For at this point, Jesus startled his contemporaries. Even his disciples were actually astonished. In that later passage in Matthew 19, we read, when he gives his view, they say, if such is the case a man of a man with his wife, it's better not to marry. For Jesus' views seemed more rigorous than the most rigorous of the rabbis. Yet what Jesus taught was nothing more than the Old Testament. He said divorcing, with certificate that enables remarriage, that this certificate of remarriage would cause her to become an adulteress. Very strong words from Jesus and we mustn't water them down or we'll miss the point of the whole way in which we are to be so different to our society. We mustn't water them down otherwise we'll miss the point of verse 32. Everyone who divorces his wife makes her commit adultery. How do you make your wife commit adultery? By divorcing her. 
You see, the legalists look at chapter 24, verse 1, and they discuss, they discuss the whole issue of what is the indecency. What is the command about the certificate? But Jesus looks at Deuteronomy chapter 24 and the whole passage, including verse 4, and he's discussing what defiles her. That is the second marriage, even though it's legal. Jesus says the first husband causes her adultery. For you have a part to play in her defilement. You divorced her for some indecency and you didn't keep her for yourself but encouraged and enabled somebody else to marry her and encouraged and enabled her to marry somebody else. But before we see this first husband's guilt, there's an obvious exception to this, unless she herself is guilty, which is found in verse 32. Everyone who divorces his wife, except on the grounds of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. I mean, if she has already gone off and committed adultery with somebody else, well, then he is not making her an adulterer. She has made herself an adulterer. If while married to him, she goes off with some other man and sets up home with somebody else, well, he has not committed adultery. He has not forced her to commit adultery. She has committed adultery. But it's the first husband's guilt. If she has not committed adultery, she has not defiled herself But because of some indecency, he sends her away with a certificate of divorce to go and marry somebody else, then he is aiding and abetting her in adultery and defilement, and he must bear some of the guilt, for he should have kept her to himself and himself to her. He has broken what God has united. His certificate of divorce has no standing in the eyes of God. They are still married in the eyes of the Lord. And any subsequent marriage is adultery in the eyes of God. The first husband is guilty, for he has been unfaithful to his wedding covenant and his wedding contract to keep himself to her and her only and to have her as his wife, that he be the husband only. And so he shares the second husband's guilt as Jesus concludes in verse 32, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. She commits adultery and the second husband commits adultery and the guilty party are all three who are engaged in it. For though she has her certificate of divorce in her hand, giving her the first husband's permission to remarry, in God's eyes she's still married to him and she does not have permission to remarry. And so the second husband is guilty. Here then, you see the phrase from the Ten Commandments, no adultery, for that's all the commandment says in the Ten Commandments, no adultery. Here now you see that commandment, no adultery, is maximised by Jesus. You see, the Pharisaic mindset is always to look for the loophole always to minimise it down, always to try and redefine the words so that they won't mean what they mean or they'll be limited down to something I can, I can manage. Whereas Jesus' desire is to have the law written on our heart and us moved by the Spirit of God to look for every opportunity to fulfil what God has said to us. For the 
to his disciples, the keeping of the law of God from the heart is full of implications and applications. What God has joined together, let no man separate. Not the husband, not the wife, not any third party. Jesus therefore takes the commandment of God with utmost maximum significance, like all the commandments of God. They're not to be avoided, they're to be lived out to the full. For the disciples of the kingdom of heaven are to be like salt and like light, whose lives bring glory to God because they are so profoundly different to the world around about them, for they are lived in the righteousness of God's word. And at this point, friends, how different we are supposed to be to the members of our family, to our work colleagues, to society around about us, which is aching because of the adulteries that are taking place in the office or in the wider family or the marriage and the remarriage and the complexities of who talks to whom and what happens when there's a wedding and you've got eight sets of parents because there's so many multiple marriages and this one doesn't talk to that one and that one doesn't add the complexities of children. We were not meant by God to live that way but God has made us that we will be united husband and wife to raise our children in faithfulness when Christians are no different to the world we have no message to preach and we will not be able to fish for men for we are in with the fish swimming with them what Jesus holds up here are very, very high standards that I know are painful for us to hear because some of us have failed already and others of us have friends and family that have failed. But they are not to commit adultery in their hearts and they're not to commit adultery by some kind of legalised fiction whereby I run through the processes, but I've never done it. It's like the legalised fiction of the marriage of the Duke of York. His bride had lived with three men before she then married him, all dressed in white, all coming down in a big formal wedding as if this were the first man. This was not the first man, this was just one of the many men. It was the first one who had done it in church and kind of signed a registry and declared they were to be husband and wife. But at that point, there's a certain legal fiction taking place, isn't it? Because if she'd done the right thing with the first man, this would be the fourth husband she had. And you wonder why the marriage collapsed a few years later. It was inevitable, frankly without a conversion, without a repentance, without a regeneration. So let us return to our pain. The common discussion about the exception clause misses the point. Jesus is challenging the way Pharisees read Deuteronomy 24 looking for the loophole, looking for the phrase, some indecency, 
following the precedent cause writing a bill of divorce and making it okay. His challenge to those who put away their wives is that if she had not made herself an adulterer, then your action is making her one, as well as the man who marries her. For the point of the law is that God unites us in marriage. It's not up for man to separate what God has united, so seek to fulfill the real law. Don't look for an escape clause to the law. Once that word or once that thought, divorce, enters into a discussion in a troubled marriage, its toxic effect poisons the outcome of any attempt at reconciliation. It really is a word that has no place in the family home, no place in the mind or heart of any couple. Easy divorce in a society undermines the very nature of the meaning of God uniting us. In recent times I've heard of two cases, separate completely, where young husbands have just changed their minds about marriage and left their wives because now that they've been married for a few years, they've decided they didn't want to be married after all. The devastation that does to the wife, to the family, the self-centeredness of it, the faithlessness of it, it's appalling. And it is unthinkable in a previous generation when easy divorce was not available. But the more people divorce, the more people divorce. And when divorce enters into a family, it cycles through generations. What God has united, let not men rend asunder. Sometimes dreadful things happen in marriages and separation is necessary, especially when there is domestic violence. But changing partners is not the way forward. Rectifying the problems, going to anger management courses and the rest, that's how you sort out the problems. Not by saying, well, I tried him and he was no good. I'll move on to him and see if he's any better. Oh, I liked her, but no, it's gone foul. I'll try her. She looks a bit more attractive. To change partners is never the solution to the problems within the marriage. Dealing with the problems in the marriage Yes, absolutely. Even to the point of separation, it must be. But deal with them, don't change. So what can we do? Well, the pain of our sinfulness and the pain caused by our spouse's sinfulness is often very deep and very profound and won't, won't be solved quickly by a few soothing words by sending a hallmark card with a little poem. It doesn't actually get fixed like that. Nothing is going to reorganise our lives more completely than working through the agony of a dysfunctional or broken marriage. Everything in our life then gets affected and changed. But the gospel gives us some very important tools with regard to forgiveness and repentance and regeneration and holiness. And their application cannot be done superficially, quickly, easily, painlessly. It's not like that. But their application can bring about real change, reconciliation, 
that is full and complete and can actually improve the bad state that we are in. Jesus' critique of the Pharisees searching for loopholes doesn't carry all the answers of what we can do. It's not given for that reason. We have to turn to the rest of the gospel, don't we? And find out about the servant who died on our behalf and rose again and the pouring out of the Spirit and forgiveness that is freely offered. And once we've found this forgiveness for what we've done, evil and rotten as it is, to be able to face up to it and to repent and to turn aside and make restitution and there's a whole host of gospel things that can help us in our, in our marriages. Huge things. But they're not found here in this passage. This passage is the critique of the Pharisees searching for loopholes to justify and legitimise ditching wife number one to move on to wife number two. Moving from husband number one to husband number two or number three. There is a thing called divorce. I can't cope with my present situation. I'll go for divorce. That's the easy solution. Wrong. That is not the easy solution. That is compounding the problems. When divorce means freedom to remarry. Separation, that may be. But freedom to remarry is not available. And so this passage warns us against seeking the easy solutions without due reference to the purposes for which God has made marriage. We need other passages of the scriptures to help us deal with the difficulties we have. Well, friends, this is the kind of Bible study where I can hear the people in the back row breathing. It's kind of such painful difficulty, isn't it? It touches us on such raw parts. And I am sorry for those of you who are in pain and are in difficulty. Let me close by praying for you in particular. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for the wonderful gift of marriage and of children and of family life and the great joys and pleasures it can bring us. But yet, Father, you know that the greatest pains we often feel in life are exactly in this same area. When we are in a bitter, unresolved tension and agony with our spouse, when they are faithless or we are faithless, when we've said things in the heat of the argument that should never have been said or even thought, and when we've had them lash our hearts and minds and emotions. And some of us, Father, find real problems with our kids, a terrible pain and disappointment in seeing them growing away from you, growing away from us. And Father, we beg your mercy upon us, each one who is here this day, that by the kindness of your son's death we might find forgiveness and having found forgiveness we might learn how to forgive others, that by the work of your spirit in our lives we might learn repentance and those who are hurting us that they too may find repentance, that through the gospel, Father, we may find real change 
real transformation of ourself and of the other members of our family so that we can be united as you would have us united. So we do pray for this for each other, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.